Before we jump into today's episode, I have some exciting news to share with you. One of the questions I get asked all the time is, do you have any tips to help our team while we're conducting our equity audits? Well, now I do. Get my brand new ebook, Three Essential Questions Every Equity Team Must Ask to Conduct Equity Audits That Make Real Change. It's your team's blueprint for action. Plus, the book comes with a cheat sheet guide at the end that can help your team use it to support your work. As I've been sharing it with folks, they've asked, well, is it $14.99 or is it $9.99? And you know what? I'm making it absolutely free. (laughs) That's right. I just want to get this information into the hands of the people who need it for absolutely free. To get your free copy, all you need to do is to go to equityaudits.com forward slash ebook. That's equityaudits with an S dot com forward slash ebook. Enter your name and your best email address and I'll send it to you right away. So grab your free copy now. All right. On to today's episode. Have you ever wondered how misconceptions about immigrant youth impact their educational experiences? Or have you ever wondered what practices might educators use to create welcoming, belonging and equitable environments for immigrant youth? Or have you ever wondered, like, what is it that we need to be knowing in our school or in our district to support immigrant youth? If you've answered yes to any of these questions, then, hey, you are in the right place. Hi, I'm Dr. Terrence L. Green. I'm a tenure professor, and I've helped to prepare hundreds of racially just and anti-racist school leaders, and I want to help you. That's why I created this podcast to provide you and your team with real-world insights and practices that work so that you can collectively build racially just schools. During today's episode, I had the honor of speaking with Dr. Sofia Rodriguez, who is currently an associate professor of education. She began her career as a middle school teacher in the New York Public Schools and was also an instructional coach for ESL teachers in the Chicago Public Schools. Dr. Rodriguez is a prolific scholar, and her ongoing projects investigate how community-based Partnerships, teachers, and school-based mental health professionals promote equity and advocate for undocumented, unaccompanied immigrant and refugee youth. She's received numerous awards for her research, including the prestigious Library of Congress Literacy Award for her research on newcomer migrant youth and belonging. During our conversation, we talk about the federal education rights of immigrant youth. We also spend some time talking about some of the false narratives that perpetuate inequity for immigrant youth and what people working in schools can do about that. We also talk about how schools can create radical notions of belonging and welcoming for immigrant youth and what educators need to be able to know and do to support immigrant youth in the most equitable ways. We talk about this and so, so much more. This is a, a powerful episode and I'm super excited for you to listen to it. And if you're ready to get into today's episode, we will in one second. But first, I have a special announcer. Welcome to the Racial Jessica's podcast. With your host, Dr. Terrence Elgrade. He's my daddy and he's the best. Let's go. You're listening to the Racially Just Schools podcast, the show that provides resources to help you and your team build racially just schools. Now, here's your host, Dr. Terrence L. Grady. Okay, welcome to the Racially Just Schools podcast. My name is Terrence L. Green, and I am your host. And yo, I am super excited about this particular episode. Hey, if you are listening right now, you may want to pause, 
get your pen, get your paper, because this is going to be an absolutely amazing episode. I'm super humbled and excited that we have the one and only Dr. Sofia Rodriguez on the Racially Just Schools podcast. Welcome, Dr. Rodriguez. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be in conversation with you. Super excited for you to be here today. And I'm 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 very excited to talk about you, talk with you, one, because of the amazing research that you've been doing, but also your professional experience um, as a former classroom teacher, instructional coach. And I want to talk all about that. But to begin, and I want to uh, hop right in and talk about the work that you've been doing, um, particularly for um, and with undocumented immigrant students and the importance of that work and the 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 justice and the equity in which that work uh, it does and it advances. And I think one of the ways I want to kind of begin this conversation is to bring folks into it. Um, could you talk a little bit about just contextually um, mm-hmm. in terms of the the resources and the opportunities and the rights that undocumented immigrant youth uh, should be getting at schools? Could you talk to talk to us about what that that dynamic looks looks like and should how that should be playing out? Yeah, so at, at kind of a very basic level, I'll just say um, in 1982, the Supreme Court passed um, Plyler v. Doe, which essentially allowed for the education of immigrant students regardless of their immigration status. So kids in our country, regardless of who they are, where they were born, where they come from, have the right to go to school and also have the right to an equitable education. So equitable access to education, um, because in the Plyler case, actually, um, in Texas, they were allowing um, students to enroll undocumented children, but also ask them about their immigration status. Um, And then when they were told they couldn't do that, they tried to charge tuition to undocumented students. Um, And so all of that was deemed, um, you know, illegal and not allowed. So the Supreme Court stood and said, you know, we need to make sure that we're providing equitable access to education um, for students, regardless of their immigration status. So I think it's important that we kind of start with those basics. Um, And then from there, other states um, throughout the last three decades or so have attempted to thwart Plyler, um, trying to implement different programs and practices to either deny education or deny access um, to post-secondary opportunities. And even though some states have succeeded in that, I think also other states, many states have um, passed different tuition equity laws for access to higher education. And so that, um, you know, school to sort of post-secondary pipeline is is much more limited for undocumented students. But I think in terms of educators in K-12 settings, they need to sort of know that there is opportunities for undocumented students, even if they're limited, um, and that they might need support. And what I've been finding is a lot of times school districts, educators, personnel in the building um, might not even know that, might not know that there's pathways for post-secondary opportunities in particular. Um, So yeah, I think some of those sort of basic rights that they have to access education K-12 and beyond um, are good places to start for educators. That's super important to think about because schools become a very pivotal and a vital institution in helping to facilitate um, equitable learning experience and also life experiences. And so you mentioned that there there are things that folks in schools should be aware of. And I'm curious if you were talking to, you know, a group of, of educators and teachers and a group of principals around some things that they should know, understanding, like you said, that different states have tried to roll back and to undermine the the federal rights that uh, undocumented immigrant immigrants youth have, like what would you offer 
uh, as like some basic things that educators on the front line should be aware of when it comes to immigrant students and specifically undocumented immigrant youth? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the first things um, is just that schools are a really important like public institution. Um, and often for immigrant students or immigrant families, they're often the only institution or system that they interact with. And so immediately sort of feeling a sense of safety and belonging, I think, is something I talk a lot um, with educators, district leaders, and school leaders about. Um, and what that kind of looks like or what that means. Um, I think building awareness about the population and their potential experience. You know, I've studied primarily undocumented and unaccompanied youth um, who are newly arrived to the country in many cases. And so I think having open access um, to the school and the school really being like that true democratic hub um, or that social hub for immigrant families, I think is really important. Now that's sort of on the educator side or the school side. I think that can be really challenging because there's a lot of fear within these communities about interfacing with public institutions, even if they know that schools are te- like are safe. Um, I've talked across the country in several studies with um, social workers and counselors and educational leaders about how even though schools are safe spaces, the larger community might not be a safe space or the larger state context might not be a safe space. Um, and so I think schools have to really work hard to provide that bridge between themselves and the families. Um, and often that how that plays out is through sort of support personnel. So social workers, counselors, parent coordinators, um, you know, having bilingual welcoming staff, providing a welcoming environment and climate in the school. I've talked a lot about what that means, um, addressing some of the anti-immigrant sentiment within the community or within the state context, depending on where people are. I think all of those things um, at the school level people can do, you know, one of my colleagues, Rebecca Lowenhop, she talks about it in her work as signaling affirmation. So like, hey, everyone's welcome here. And I think that looks different in different places. You know, it's difficult potentially in Texas to hang welcoming scenes up, um, potentially. But, you know, in places like Chicago, where I've done my research, for instance, there were signs all over the building about undocumented families, college scholarships, go to college. And they had particular roles in their school that were post-secondary coaches, for instance, um, and counselors who worked specifically with that population. So again, depending on the school and the population and the needs, I think identifying that is really important in order to make sure that you have the right personnel, you know, you do the right hiring, and then you kind of continue to build that welcoming climate through those practices, for instance. No, no, I love that. That's great. And uh, shout out to Becca. I love that. (laughs) I'm curious now because you're right there. Schools have a pivotal role to play as this powerful public institution. And then on the sides of the families, there could be apprehension. There is fear because of the the realities of, of, of what's happened in this country. And so I'm curious, could you talk a little bit about the role of community based organizations? Right. Because the. Families and communities and caregivers, you know, may be apprehensive to schools, but there may be certain community-based organizations where they they have this sense of trust. They have this sense of um, there is the belonging and radical belonging in those places. So could you talk a little bit about the importance of schools engaging in robust and what our colleague Dr. Annie Shamaru calls these equitable collaborations with community-based organizations as it relates to uh, immigrant youth? 
Absolutely. I'm so glad you asked that. I'm doing a a big project about that right now. And I think this also can look different um, depending on the infrastructure in communities. So some of the districts I work with are right outside large urban centers. Others are in more rural parts of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland. And so the opportunity to have meaningful partnerships with CBOs might be more limited, um, but often they'll turn to sort of faith-based organizations or whatever organizations might be within the community. But to your question about CBOs, yes, I work a lot with community-based organizations that are particularly serving immigrant families. And I think one of the things that I'm finding is when there's sort of formal partnerships and even ad hoc or informal partnerships, um, there tends to be a greater support system provided with, to the immigrant families in that community. So, for example, um, here in Maryland, I actually work with a community-based organization who partners with the school district on a number of programs um, that are run through the We Have Wellness Centers in Maryland, um, which are funded through Health and Human Services. Um, they're kind of like a community schools model, but they're a little bit different. Um, but I'm happy to say more about that. But essentially, this organization helps to facilitate um, those wellness centers. So there's um, different programs for Latino youth in particular. Um, there's also a ton of parent programming. Um, but one of the things the community-based organization really tries to do is help because the families do trust that organization and they don't necessarily trust the school district. And part of that reason is the exclusion and discrimination they faced as language learning parents, um, assumptions that have been made about, you know, their views on education and how they're caring for their children and youth. Um, And so they're afraid and also have had bad experiences with the school district. And so they often always turn to the community-based organization to sort of broker that relationship. And so on the one hand, the organization, um, which I think a lot of CBOs do, is they provide sort of direct services, right? So there's sort of a mental health component or mental health access. Often they'll have legal resources if the families need that um, available at the organization or, you know, a contact to help them get those services. Um, They also provide direct programming. So um, I'm studying right now, for instance, an after-school program for Latino immigrant youth who are newly arrived, um, and they learn all about sort of the civic structure of communities. They learn about navigating school. They learn about things they should be learning about in school, like aspirations and sense of belonging and positive identity development. But because they're not, they're turning to these organizational spaces. The organization also runs parent programs, as I mentioned, which can be things like ESL, but also things around migration-related trauma and building social capital and networks of support among um One of the organizations has like an intergenerational model. So they work with the kids and the parents um, on sort of these issues they've faced in coming to the country and the ripple effects of their immigration status once they're here. And so I think on the one hand, you know, part of the reason these spaces exist and are so powerful is because schools are not getting it right in a lot of cases. Um, But they're also really unique, special spaces for families and youth. And I think um, they build that social capital. Like I mentioned, they build those social networks. um, And ideally, they build political power um, and they do advocacy work for the parents or help the parents to sort of learn how to advocate for themselves. Because I think, again, when you're undocumented or, you know, facing immigration hearings, you don't necessarily want to be standing protesting the school board about access issues because you're putting a spotlight on yourself. But I think that's dangerous um, because schools are really capitalizing on not serving the population and not 
treating them as equal and welcoming them into the conversation. Um, and so the CBO in this particular community is really brokering that advocacy and trying to build those coalitions and um, political power for them as well. So I could say a lot more about that, but CBOs are awesome. And I really believe that they play a pivotal role in um, reducing some of these inequities that immigrant families um, are facing. No, I love it. I love it because I think community-based organizations, as they partner in deeply authentic and robust ways with schools, can amplify the the larger capacity that mm-hmm. that that folks who are supporting immigrant youth have, right? Because often I think it's easy to think that the school is the center of the world and the universe, and mm-hmm. a school may not have the collective organizational capacity, but the partnerships with the community-based organizations can leverage that in some some new and profound ways. So thank you for mm-hmm. absolutely that light on that. I'm curious. So like even if a school then, um, if we think about their capacity, where they are, and they they're saying, all right, we really need to um, root our practices in some deeply equitable and just ways to support um, immigrant youth. Um, to our newcomers, like where would you offer for a school of where they can start and how they think about belonging to Nicole mm-hmm. talks about this idea of radical belonging and thinking mm-hmm. about the dynamics of power that goes along with belonging and thinking about, you know, they've arrived into a, 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 a patriarchal, a white supremacy, an anti-black settler system. Right. And so how, what should schools be thinking about if they're just starting this work um, to do it in some equitable and powerful ways to support immigrant youth. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think a lot about the concept of belonging in my work. Um, And so two of the districts I've been working with, one of the things that's been really powerful is, so they're in very different places. Um, They're really at the start of their work with immigrant youth and trying to improve relationships. Um, And so a lot of districts around the country, I'm sure, as you know, equity audits, equity planning. And I think that is a space um, that has historically been like thought about as like a black white relationship in many of these districts and sort of with the demographic shifts um, with new immigrant populations that sort of, I think, confounding a lot of districts in in some way, because they're like, what do we do with all of these immigrant students? And I think if we actually just took a step back and thought about it as racial equity in general, um, as a conversation starting point, that's what I've been doing with districts. And so thinking about what does equity look like for minoritized students, because belonging, I just did a recent study with Uh, minoritized youth belonging and Black and Latinx youth all experience lower school belonging and community belonging and out-of-school belonging when compared to their white peers. And so I think there's issues that are facing minoritized youth kind of more broadly that could be part of these racial equity plans that districts are engaging in as a first step to thinking about how to improve climate, how to improve welcome. Um, But I think for immigrant, like immigrant youth and newcomer youth in particular, you know, I think the language access is a huge issue in D.C. There's a language access act um, where social service institutions and educational institutions are supposed to provide language support. Um, and I don't just mean like ESL um, and bilingual programs, but even sort of in the hiring practices at the district level um, and at the school level. So thinking, how can we recruit a more diverse 
you know, workforce of teachers and staff in the school and folks who are bilingual potentially. And, you know, for me, I study Latinx students, but there's a host of other um, types or backgrounds of immigrant and refugee youth in particular. So I think thinking more broadly about things that I know states and districts are thinking about, diversity in the teacher workforce particularly is an issue. Um, That's one thing. Um, I think another thing that schools could potentially do is just build a broader awareness about the population. And what I mean by that, I've, I've written a lot about that and learned a lot about just some of the false conceptions about immigrant families, about why they come to the U.S., what they do when they get here, um, what they have access to or don't. So building a broader awareness about the population. So I do a lot of that. I I give workshops um, around sort of the context of immigration, why families migrate, um, you know, some of the challenges that they face along the way. Um, That's something that districts are thinking a lot about, I think, too, at least over on the East Coast, because I've worked with several. Um, And so building awareness, like I said, thinking about racial equity as part of this work. Um, And then I think finding ways to help families access resources. So whether that's like a resource inventory, I worked with a group of equity directors a couple months ago about this, um, just trying to pool what is in the community um, and available. And I think this goes to your earlier point about, you know, maybe outside organizations or outside legal or mental health services that could potentially expand or extend what the school might not be able to do, right? Because schools can't have 10 social workers on staff or counselors to do all of this support work. And in many cases, the the mental health component, you know, there's a lot going on related to migration trauma in families. And so I think that is outside sometimes the expertise of what schools are able to do. And so building those partnerships and relationships, I think, um, through coalitions or, you know, community-based organizations or what we were talking about before is really important too. Oh, this is great. This is rich. And I, I love this. So we always I always like to say here, the goal is to be theoretically rich, yet powerfully practical. Right. Mm-hmm. And at that intersection and that tension of, uh, you know, rooted in, in theory deeply, but it's powerfully practical for folks who are listening to it. So you, you did that beautifully. You mentioned this here and I know you've been uh, doing some research on this and you you've talked about, you know, sharing this with folks in communities and different presentations about some of just like the false misconceptions, which. Mm-hmm you know, uh, I think is a function of of white supremacy. It is to put a particular gaze on, uh, you know, immigrant youth, on Black folks, on Latinx folks. And Mm -hmm. I think it's super important for us to be aware of what those false conceptions are and that misinformation Mm -hmm. is so that we can directly confront it and turn it on its head. Um, And so I'm curious, could you talk about a little, a little bit about some of the false misconceptions that folks associate with immigrant youth um, in the spirit of confronting those um, in some very explicit ways. Yeah. So I think I was very surprised to learn. So I did a project with um, a former mentee where we surveyed over 5,200 public school teachers in the U.S., um, And we learned a lot about the false narratives and misconceptions about immigrant families. And I was really surprised because we asked a lot of questions about um, pathways to citizenship and then questions about policies impacting immigrant students like DACA, for instance. And I can say more about that if we're interested. But a lot of so on the survey, the teachers or the educators who took the survey had the option as true, false, I don't know. And so if 
you don't know something, you'd think you'd answer, I don't know. Um, but in many cases, they selected the wrong answer. And so we were really concerned. We we're actually alarmed by this because it's like they're out there thinking they know about these policies and these impacts and these um, consequences of immigration. And so I think that was something we learned um, as a first step to kind of naming like, oh, we need to talk about this, your question of like these false narratives. And so I think from there, um, one of the false narratives is that um, people think that immigrants, you know, don't want to get citizenship because they're lazy or they just don't know how to do it. And it's like, well, there actually isn't a pathway to getting citizenship if you come to the U.S. as undocumented. Um, and so thinking about the population of undocumented students, because in 2012 with DACA and the Obama administration and all of the support for DACA and that initiation, um, I think people sometimes forget that there's there's many youth, literally thousands in our country that are not eligible for DACA. So DACA is a temporary relief program. Um, and there's certain criteria. And most of the students that I've studied, um, over 200 or so immigrant youth in the last couple of year or five years or so, they're not eligible for that program. And so what do we do about this large population that's folded into many local communities um, that don't have that sort of temporary relief option? Um, and I think also people aren't really problematizing that temporary relief. We shouldn't see that as this great reward that we're not, de you know, deporting a certain segment of the population. Um, so I think those false narratives around what policies exist um, and what is actually possible um, for this community is one thing to, to consider. Um, I think a common one that I heard, and, and this was sort of augmented during the last election, um, is that immigrants are stealing jobs and they're criminals. Um, I think this is um, something that's talked about a lot in the Latinx community, especially among the youth. Um, I wrote about this a little bit in one of my papers in education policy, where the youth were talking about, you know, what jobs are we stealing from white people is one thing that a youth said to me. Um, and another had said, you know, we do the jobs or our parents do the jobs that white people don't want to do. And so for me, in that work that I've done, when youth are talking about those underlying white supremacist, racist racial profiling, all those things that are going on. I talk a lot about in my work as racialization, the processes of othering um, that immigrants are facing in local communities. Um, Leo Chavez's work, he's also talked about it as Latino threat. So there's a, a perception that this foreignness, you know, this foreign born monster is going to come and ruin all of our local local states and, and local communities. Um, and I think the work that I do when I try to... Um, augment youth experiences and youth voices around this is they really draw out that hypocrisy um, because in many communities in, in our country in the 80s, we recruited undocumented labor to the U.S. to do jobs that folks here didn't want to do. And so we forget that. Um, and so I think shedding light on those paradoxes or that hypocrisy is another important piece of naming false narratives. Um, and I guess the last thing I would say um, I've kind of, I guess two more, um, they don't care about school is often one I hear because there's an increase in absenteeism, but actually a lot of scholars, Tom D at Stanford, um, a colleague, Jacob Kirksky at Texas Tech, um, they've done work on sort of why absenteeism has been Latino community and have made connections, um, to immigration enforcement and the fears in communities around immigration enforcement. So again, trying to understand some of these challenges um, 
and maybe why they're occurring rather than sort of assuming that it's because these are criminals or people who don't care about school or people who don't care about education. Um, and I think the last one, which might be a little, I don't, I'm a little um, always hesitant to talk about this, but I think another false narrative that I hear a lot in schools is that they need English, right? So we have language learning needs, multilingual learners, um, but it's like, just because they're going to learn English isn't going to kind of solve everything. Like we're still asking them to conform to the ways that schools are working that might, um, you know, not acknowledge some of their cultural assets. Um, and so there's a common narrative around they need English. And so let's let's pound English only programs and practices. And of, of course, I think it's important for students to learn the language, um, to, be, to be able to navigate systems and to be able to broker you know, conversations between their families and schools too. But I think there's such a focus on that. And that really gets wrapped up in the assimilationist kind of perspective, which can be deficit-based and really problematic. And of course, um, one of my favorites on Hila Valenzuela has talked about this as a subtractive experience in schooling that we're asking kids to sort of leave parts of themselves at the door when they come into the school rather than sort of welcome those parts of themselves and sort of acknowledge and augment um those things as cultural linguistic assets rather than seeing them as deficits. So sorry, that was a lot, but there's a lot of misconceptions out there. It's striking that those teachers, instead of selecting the option that they did not know, they mm-hmm. selected something that was incorrect and it was false. And so there is a degree of, I think, intellectual humility that one must have to engage mm-hmm. in those work and I'm curious, you know, one of the things I always talk about is to, to ask and not to assume. And so yeah. I'm curious if teachers were curious, right? They're like you're, you're genuinely curious. Like what types of questions um, should folks be asking um, so that they can not reify the mm-hmm. same uh, false narratives so that they won't reify and reproduce the same misinformation but if someone genuinely is trying to come alongside and to learn together, like what are what types of questions would you imagine that folks mm-hmm. would be asking that would be generative, that would be fruitful, that would be uh, that would be dignifying and humanizing of, of families and youth who are immigrants? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think a lot of it starts with, you know, asking who who are these kids? Um, so I did a workshop for a group of educators a couple months ago, and I always start, I ground myself in the youth and things that I've heard from them. And I'm very lucky because now as an ethnographer and researcher, I've talked to a lot of people, I've heard a lot of stories. And I know that that's a privilege. Like we have the time and space to often do that. Whereas teachers are doing their jobs and they should be, and they should be focused on, you know, what's going on in the classroom community and instruction and things like that. But I think in order to kind of even get there, they need to know who they're teaching and who, who they're working with. And, you know, I think getting curious about kids' backgrounds and experiences can be really informative. Um, And we know from a long history of research, and you and I talked a little bit earlier about radical belonging, and I study a lot about social belonging and the social relationships and trust that kids need to have in order to even do school, right? So if kids don't feel a sense of connectedness to the teacher or 
within the school, it's less likely that they're going to even do school or, or show up for school. And so that relational component is so critical and so important. And I think you build relationships and trust by asking about kids and what their interests are and who they are. And, um, you know, I think with immigrant students, there can be a range of, um, you know, some kids don't want to talk about their trauma and the things that they've experienced. And that might take time. Um, you know, as an ethnographer, I've spent months in schools where I'm sitting next to a kid and it's not till nine months later that I learn from their words that they're undocumented and that they had this migration journey. And so we have to kind of respect where kids are. Um, And I've always been really interested in kids and I love the way they make sense of the world and the stuff they say, I often find really hilarious. And I think that's part of that relationship building that I think if you show them that you're on an equal level with them, there's not a hierarchy within the learning space that even though the teacher might know things and be teaching us things, um, you know, I think meeting them at a more human level, um, getting curious about their stories, their backgrounds, the things they care about, um, asking their thoughts on things. You know, I think kids are really intellectual leaders um, and policy thinkers. I've talked a lot about in my work. And I think when we really show that, we actually mean that and center their voices, um, incorporate their voices. Um, I think teachers can ask questions like, what are you interested? What should we be doing? How would we tackle this problem? How would we think about X? Um, you know, I think those are, are ways to start. And some of the teachers I've interviewed over the years have also talked about that. Like the sort of exemplary teachers that have been in some of my work have built those relationships and have asked those questions and have heard their stories and listened, you know, empathetically. I've talked about it in my work as strategic empathy. You know, we want to listen and love and care and help heal, but we also want to sort of use that as like an empowerment tool for kids. So when we're listening to their stories and their experiences, you know, how can we turn that into sociopolitical action or, you know, advocacy for them as well? So I think when kids start to see that, um, they feel heard and understood, um, then they're, and that they could act or think, you know, of more that might be possible. Um, I think we really empower the youth and in the community-based organization where kids feel a sense of belonging and heard, um, they're not feeling that in their schools and in their classrooms. And they're using that as a reference point. Um, And so I ask a lot of like, what's different here in the community space? And they're like, well, they ask my opinion here or they care about me here. And I'm like, well, what does care mean? How do you know that you're cared about? And they say like, well, they, (laughs) they have respect for me. They affirm who I am, you know, so I think once we start listening to kids um, and centering that to ask our questions, I think that could be really powerful in the school setting. What if a school, I'm just being imaginative here, what if a school was uh, deeply, deeply uh, a place of this, is this radical and social belonging, strategic empathy is happening there. Uh, immigrant youth can be them for their full selves there. I, I'm curious, mm-hmm. what would you imagine happening in that school? What would you see? What would you hear? What would you feel? What would instruction look like? What would uh, partnerships and engagement with family look like? What What would that be if you were imaginative? What would the policy context also looks like, look like to help facilitate and to uh, promote the work that's happening there? But what what might you expect to experience if you were in a school where that was taking place? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I actually just want to 
plug a friend of mine, a great book he just wrote, Jordan Corson. It came out with Teachers College Press. He starts to think about this. He calls it, I think he calls it undocumented or undocu-schooling. Um, he's going to kill me for not remembering that. But um, we just reviewed that book too. But it's it's about newcomers and newcomer immigrant students. Um, but he talks a lot about sort of a radical curriculum and a, a lived curriculum. So I've thought a little bit about that. I wrote a piece with a colleague of mine um, where we thought about undocumented youth's lived experiences as curriculum um, and sort of their, we called it the subjugated knowledge and the embodied knowledge. So building a curriculum that's kind of of their experience. Um, I think some of the more successful classrooms and after-school programs that might feed into a school, like an imaginative school like this, um, would include kids' experiences in the sense that um, I, I know one of the programs I observed, the kids did like a community inventory where they looked up different resources within the community. So different community-based organizations that worked with immigrant families. So they made a list of all of those. And then as part of the after-school program, they actually interviewed um, people who worked in those organizations. And then they put together, you know, like a digital resource. And that was their interest. They wanted to do that because they wanted to provide it to their high school to give to kit to get to give to other newcomers and part and I would ask them why. And they said, because we want people to have a better experience than we did when we came to the country. And so I think things like that where it's sort of, you know, you get to school, you get your books, you get your class schedule. Many newcomers who come to the country may, may have had interrupted schooling or they may not have had the same school structure. So even just navigating the school day is going to be something that's overwhelming and different. And so the kids in my project, they wanted to sort of help ease that transition a little bit. And so I think having a school space that's sort of A, aware of that and B, like thinking, you know, instead of maybe three hours of English only instruction, maybe you have 30 minutes about, you know, what is school? What do we do here? Um, you know, what is the point of all this? I think there's such a strong focus in schools on outcomes. And I think there becomes a point, again, back to what we were talking about, we can't really think about academic outcomes if we don't think about social belonging and connectedness to these institutions and sort of acknowledging with kids even like, hey, this might be different than what you've experienced in your home country. And that's okay. You know, here's how we're going to do it here. And we're open to sort of thinking about what might be most useful. Um, I used to teach ESL in Chicago and I coached first and second year ESL and bilingual teachers. And I mean, the number of things I did in my school, you know, my principal always used to like have a heart attack when he saw me with kids you know, just because I was like walking them around the neighborhood or like taking them to the grocery store, like things like that. And I worked with um, very beginner language learners, but that's part of education. Like education doesn't just happen sitting at a desk, reading something and writing about it, you know, and I trying to find space for that in an imaginative way is, is really often difficult to do in schools because of other accountability pressures. Um, so I think that's that's kind of a big component of it, using their knowledge and lived experience, their embodied knowledge as a starting point, um, thinking about curriculum as living, something that's evolving, that they can have input in. Um. Thinking about how we prepare folks to go who, who work in schools, whether that be, you know, school leaders and administrators, whether that be classroom uh, teachers, whether that's support staff, paraprofessionals. Mm-hmm. Um, even in structural cultures, I think that's often a um, 
a particular role in schools that um, at times gets uh, over overlooked as we talk about administrators. But I'm curious, what would you offer to the people who are preparing teachers, who are preparing leaders about um, mm-hmm. what we should be thinking in our our preparation of folks to do this work in some deeply just and equitable ways is one thing. And then the second part, I'm thinking about what might you offer to schools and how they might take up professional learning in ways to support immigrant youth that are not, you know, just symbolically celebratory, right? So we celebrate, uh, you know, someone who's immigrated as a hero, or we have uh, food nights and, and festivals. And I'm not, I'm not, you know, critiquing that. I'm not saying that's incorrect, but alone, if that's the only thing you do, is is deeply incomplete, and it can be deeply symbolic, and it doesn't impact like the structural realities and the lived experience of young people. So I'm curious on both ends, what might you offer to the folks who prepare people going into schools? And then what Mm -hmm. might you offer to people who are already in schools that are engaged in their professional learning about how they might take this work up in some deep and authentic ways? Yeah, definitely. These are great questions. Um, So I think on the preparation piece, there's a a couple things I would say. Um, Years ago, I used to teach the sort of educational foundations class at the institution I was at, and it was great. It was you know, I had 30 or 40 undergrad pre-service teachers three times a semester in those classes. And I think the challenge is that's often like the diversity course or the space where they're doing things outside of what's required um, as part of their teacher prep training. And I think that's, I I don't, that debate is probably still going. Um, I, unfortunately, I don't teach many pre-service teachers anymore, but I think that is the challenge that, um, that one course that they might get is a multicultural education lesson. Or um, I used to actually in my classes do a little mini history of immigration in the U.S. um, as part of the sort of historical and social foundations of education. Um, I used to always teach on on Hala's book, Subtractive Schooling. And, um, you know, I think thinking about critical consciousness and um, the pedagogy of the oppressed, like those are common things I think that get taught in those classes. Um, But I think we need more than that. I think there needs to be, especially because people treat the immigration sort of quote unquote crisis or the border crisis as a new issue. Um, Waves of immigration have been happening in the U.S. for decades. And I think these crises are kind of positioned as new and that sort of defers action. And so I, I'm always fascinated by that. Um, but I think if we instill immigration history, politics of education um, within the conversation of equity or multicultural education or diversity in schooling, whatever those courses might be, I I wish there were room for more of those courses. Um, so that leads me to the second thing I would say, I was very fortunate at my university currently, Maryland, um, we worked collaboratively across departments. So I worked with the counseling department and we've successfully gotten approved um, through a partnership with a local school district here. Um, a certificate program for in-service school counselors um, to learn more about. um, So they'll take a set of four courses. Two will be sort of about language learners and more kind of like on the instructional side so they can learn kind of what's going on in those classes. And then I developed a course on immigrant education, which is sort of the sociopolitical context, history of immigration, theories about how we've studied immigration issues um, and immigrant integration in the country. And then there's a big module on how can schools and educators and school personnel support them. So that took 
two, almost three years to get approved. Um, so you can see kind of the climb that universities might have. But that's one way I think, whether it's through increased coursework or certificate programs for in-service teachers or pre-service teachers, um, counselors, social workers, like that's a space I think um, that we could improve um, the educational training. Because I, I work with a lot of social workers and counselors across the country, and often they've had maybe one course um, and it's always framed around cultural competency. And there's some problems around that terminology that I, I'm sure you can appreciate. Um, and so I think really digging into like a critical course on immigrant issues in education um, and the politics in the U.S., I think, is always something that we should be pushing for. And with leaders, too. I know leader preparation. And again, I'm very fortunate because I get to teach those courses with educational leaders in particular. Um, but it shouldn't just be at the doctoral level. You know, I think it should be at the pre and in-service. And so the last piece about in-service, um, yeah, I do a lot of workshops with districts um, and personnel these days. And, you know, I have sort of different activities that I work through with them in those sessions. Um, some of the frameworks that I've developed around unpacking ourselves, our power dynamics, our whiteness in many cases, because we know the teaching and counseling and social work professions are largely white female. Um, and so I think I do a lot of identity unpacking um, because of those differences and often the misalignment between race and ethnicity of adults versus kids. Um, so I think that's a huge component that we're afraid to sometimes enter into. Um, it's also difficult to have a deep conversation about racial identity and white supremacy in one 90 minute session. So I often encourage districts to, you know, sign up for two or three and try to make it an ongoing practice if possible. Um, again, I know there's a lot that's going on in schools, but if we don't have these critical conversations around race, inequity, and power, um, I don't know how we would expect, you know, structural change if we're not sort of naming those things um, to start. So I think that's one way um, within the professional learning communities. And then another thing I've done a lot with lately is organizational routines, attitudes, and practices, and sort of doing that organizational inventory um, with district leaders and school leaders in, in some of the workshops I've done, where we think about like, what are your practices? What are your programs? What are your racial attitudes? Um, and that sort of organizational work. Um, there's a couple of really cool tools I'm happy to share with you um, that can walk through, walk groups through that process. And they're going to be in different places too, right? So, you know, some are going to be in the really beginning stage of thinking about how do we improve our organization around these issues. Um, some are going to already have some programs and potential supports. Some might be trying to build or expand out. So, you know, the tool that I have used is really useful and flexible in that way um, for people to think about how to start incorporating immigrant student equity into their organizational practices and routines. I love it. I love that's That's awesome. That's absolutely awesome. Where can folks, you know, find out more about you if, if schools or districts want to reach out to possibly work with you? Where can people learn more about you and what you're doing? Totally. I can share my, um, so I was very fortunate a couple years ago through the support of William T. Grant Foundation and my current institution. Um, I founded a lab called Immigrant Ed Next. Um, and I talk about it as like a space for resources. So I post generally all of my projects, um, any sort of policy briefs. Um, I also started running a blog series um, where we've invited practitioners um, as well as academics, um, graduate students, early career, senior folks 
to share their ongoing work. Um, you know, what's good, what's going on um, in relation to immigrant education. Um, and I, I'm thinking about sort of what's next, like what are the questions we need to be asking? And so that website uh, I've really developed to try to be a public set of resources and you can contact me, you can contact my students, um, my wonderful students who help run the lab. And then we do obviously a lot of research projects and that's sort of how I get connected with folks, um, school districts, you know, people who are interested in kind of doing workshops or having me come in and, and work with folks. So I'm happy to share the link for that maybe. Yeah, totally. I'll put it in the show notes. And what's the what's the link so we can just shout it out here as well? It's immigrant ed next Sophia Rodriguez PhD.com. Awesome. 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 Wow. Sophia, honestly, I really mean this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You share a lot of amazing information and wisdom. And I know it's a busy time of year. It's always busy. And uh, for you to take time out really honestly means a lot to me. So thank you so very much for- Of course. uh, It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, folks. That is it. And uh, in the words of old Marty Marty Mar, we see you when we see you. Peace. We out. Well, that is it, folks. Thank you so much for joining. I hope you enjoyed it. And I am so excited and really looking forward to our time together during future podcasts. What I need you to do is to please hit the subscribe button, share with a friend, and please leave a review. Love reviews. And if you want to hear more from me, you can head on over to www.raciallyjustschools.com. That is www com. When you join our community, I have a free video for you on three tips that will make your racial justice work better. And again, if you love the show, hit subscribe, rate it, and leave a review on iTunes. And until next time, peace.